0: Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. In our last episode, we discussed the life of Latina trans legend Holly Woodlawn in the first of our three part series on Andy Warhol's Trio of Trans Muses. Continuing on in our series, this week we will shift our focus onto one of Holly's dearest friends the poet, playwright, drag queen, and superstar, Jackie Curtis. One of the key figures in the emergence of queer experimental theater in the 1960s and 70s, Curtis had a life as big as her stage presence. Truly embodying what we might now call genderqueer, Jackie navigated life alternating between genders. She once wrote, I'm not a boy, not a girl, not a faggot, not a drag queen, not a transsexual. I'm just me, Jackie.
1: I'm going to sing, are you boys just a little bit down, thinking about us girls back home? Well, don't. Because I'm going to sing you a little song that the English boys used to sing when they were out fighting for their empire, right before it fell in on top of them. (laughs) Oh, in old Constantinople, every gal has got an oboe where her tickler ought more properly to be. And each one sits, as I am told, on a thunder mug of gold, I am as you weigh bottles what they pee. We avoid unpleasant odor, they wash out with caustic soda, till it's sweet as it can rightly hope to be. But to and English woe's wet and open where well. it grows in its dear old-fashioned garden is for me. They used to sing it a lot when they were on Gwen's details. You know, putting their buddies in sacks when the smell started getting to them. You got an American cigarette? I'm all tapped out. <laughs>
0: they all and they it to understand the circumstances of her birth you have to learn a thing or two about the sexual economy of early post-war New York City At the time, there were many gradations of sex work that women used to survive. As the boys came home from the war, women began to lose access to jobs they'd filled during this time, leaving only menial jobs such as being a maid, a secretary, or a hat check girl, and sexual jobs available. There was a spectrum of sexual services that ranged from, say, street-based sex workers on one end to taxi dancers on the other, more, quote, respectable end. Taxi dancers were women who danced at dance halls, whom men could pay a small fee to dance with. On paper, this would not lead to anything further. The men were not supposed to get fresh with the girls, and many of the women involved were quite emphatic about this being the case, though it is perhaps obvious that this is about as true as saying most strippers don't offer extras during private dances. Openly acknowledging this would be tawdry at best and criminal at worst, much like today, so the owners of these dance halls could act quite haughty about the subject, denying that anything untoward was happening off the dance floor. Jackie's grandmother, Anna Marino Uglialloro, affectionately known as Slugger Ann, worked in just such a dance hall Along with her were both of her daughters, Jean and Josie. During the day, Jean worked as a certified personal accountant, and at night joined her mother and sister in earning fares, dancing with soldiers, sailors, and other young men looking for a good time. Sometime in 1946, Jean was paid to dance with John B. Holder, a Veterans Administration worker, and they quickly married before Jean gave birth to Jackie on February 19, 1947. Holder moved Jean and baby Jackie back home to Stony Creek, Tennessee, but Jean couldn't adjust to small town life. And by September of that year, she took infant Jackie and returned home to Slugger Ann in New York City. Leaving the strange blip in her life that was her marriage behind, Jackie went back to working in dance halls. Slugger Ann took over raising young Jackie while herself continuing to work. By the following year, Jean and John would finalize their divorce. Jackie would end up splitting her time between New York and Tennessee, between Catholicism and baptism for most of her childhood, something she would later, perhaps jokingly, credit for her life spent moving between genders. As the 1950s rolled around, along with the post-war economic boom, Slugger Ann opened her own bar, imaginatively named Slugger Ann's, on 2nd Avenue at 12th Street or thereabouts. She was well set up to run such a joint, having previously run a speakeasy during Prohibition. Slugger Ann had been a very colorful character, also having worked as a burlesque queen at some point. Sasha McCaffrey says that she had once been the mistress of former New York City mayor Jimmy Walker, who may or may not have bought the bar for her. McCaffrey also says that apparently Slugger Ann had enormous breasts and would occasionally walk into her bar with seven chihuahuas perched on top of them, hanging out of her low-cut dress to give everyone a laugh. Growing up, Jackie spent much of her time outside the bar alone, bullied and ostracized in school for being fat and effeminate. Like many young queer and trans people, the cinema became her refuge. Jackie would later say, When I was an adolescent and went to the movies, I realized that I identified with the female characters, and then the lights would come up and I was attracted to people of the same sex. I don't think of myself as gay, although I do sleep exclusively with men, but sex is not my main goal either. Jackie became fixated on the movies. Photojournalist and longtime friend of Curtis, Gretchen Berg, says, Jackie told me one time he came home from a day at the movies and his grandmother was really angry and said, what are we going to do with you sitting in the movies all day long, eating popcorn and candy, getting your head filled up with dreams? But Jackie said... Listen, I love dreams. They're better than what I'm getting. In May 1959, the Phoenix Theater, across the street from where Jackie and Slugger Ann lived, opened a production of Once Upon a Mattress, starring a young Carol Burnett. Burnett would earn a Tony nomination for her role as Princess Winifred, while a star-struck 12-year-old Jackie would be inspired to pursue a life in theater. As Craig Heiberger relates decades later, Jackie would tell Village Voice columnist Michael Musto that Burnett became his spiritual godmother. Just a few years later, determined to begin a life in theater, Jackie enrolled in the High School of Art and Design in 1962 and the following year became friends with young runaway Susanna Ventura, Ventura would later come to be known as Penny Arcade, a performance artist, playwright, and Warhol superstar herself. Legend has it that it was Penny Arcade who first began dressing Jackie up in drag. While Slugger Ann's hot take on Jackie's early experiments with drag was that, as Jackie would later put it, I think it's fine to be considered strange because you're certain to be noticed, an individual is remembered. Not all of Jackie's family were quite so pleased. For years, Jackie's Uncle Tony would threaten her over her gender presentation. Styles Caldwell explains, He was really macho and bullheaded, and when Jackie started running around in a dress, Uncle Tony chased him around the city with a gun. He wanted to beat Jackie up because he said he was a disgrace to the family name. When Uncle Tony died of a heart attack in his car with his girlfriend, everybody was relieved. Jackie's go-to look would be a pea coat and bowl cut as she marched around New York City with a plastic shopping bag full of records and plays, introducing herself to every theater personality she could find. Finally, at age 17, Jackie got her first break into the theater world. She appeared in Tom Ein's Miss Nefertiti Regrets at La Mama Experimental Theater Club, The play was also the first stage appearance of Bette Midler, who played the title character. Jackie played Nefertiti's brother, Ptolemy. Ellen Stewart, founder of La Mama, would go on to work with Jackie extensively over the years as Jackie began staging her own shows out of La Mama and would later say she considered Jackie a genius. Earlier that same year, Jackie had briefly met Andy Warhol when she spotted Gretchen Berg photographing and interviewing him on the street. Jackie sidled up to Berg and suggested that she take photos of her. Perhaps impressed by the confidence of this gawky teenager interrupting a photo shoot with, of all people, Andy Warhol, Berg did in fact take photos of Jackie and they became friends. Jackie and Andy would meet again later, though their stories would conflict with each other as to how. Jackie said she met Andy while she was living at the YMCA across the street from the factory, while Andy said he met Jackie while he was walking down the street on the way to buy some leather pants at Leatherman. And he stopped to speak to Jackie and the tall, blonde drag queen he was with, a young candy darling, at the time going by the name Hope Slattery. So, three different takes on how they met. I'll let you decide for yourself which is the definitive. Either way, it was clearly a turning point in young Jackie's life. A few months after her stage debut at La Mama on March 30th, 1966, Jackie would meet Hollywood Lawn and Candy Darling. They met at a party hosted by a mutual friend named Seymour in the West Village to watch Barbara Streisand's TV special Color Me Barbara on Seymour's Color TV. You can hear some of that in the background right now because you know I love some Barbara. The three quickly became inseparable, and later that spring, Holly and Candy would find a sketchy doctor to provide them hormones. Jackie would experiment with hormones for the first time after they all got hold of them, something she would do on and off for several years. But Jackie wasn't quite like Holly and Candy, who were both quite committed to living full-time in women's clothing and trying to pass as women. Jackie's experiments with drag were more theatrical. She eschewed breast forms and hip padding and often even tucking, pioneering the sort of genderqueer, genderfuck drag that's so popular nowadays. At the time, few people were doing this, Drag was very much strictly within the realm of female impersonation and the borderlands of an emergent transsexual identity. By Halloween of that year, Jackie was going out in drag regularly, arm in arm with Holly and Candy as their sort of stranger sister. The next year, Jackie began writing her first play. She told Craig Heiberger, I went to the opening night of the opera, Antony and Cleopatra. Leontine Price was doing Cleopatra. Of course, I couldn't afford a ticket, but I went to Lincoln Center to hang around in the lobby and see the rich people arriving in all their finery. It turned out Lady Bird Johnson was there, and she came out during intermission and was screaming, how glamorous, all that glitter and all that gold. And I thought, fabulous, there's my title, glamour, glory, and gold. I was writing my play and hanging around at the Café La Mama, and I was shy and nobody wanted to know me. Then I met Ron Link, who was a director and a packer of many bags, and I told him about my play and asked him if he wanted to direct it, and I hadn't even completed it yet. And I actually finished Glamour, Glory, and Gold on his bed on East 4th Street, but nobody wanted to do it. Ellen Stewart wouldn't do it at La Mama, so I took it to Bastiano's Playwrights Workshop. And he played very hard to get, but there wasn't anything very hard to get there because he had no play on, so that is where we premiered. Glamour, glory, and gold, the life and legend of Nola Noonan, goddess and star, would be Jackie and Candy's first stage roles as women. The play followed the rise and fall of histrionic Hollywood has-been Nola Noonan. You can read an excerpt from the play in Craig Heiberger's Superstar in a House Dress. Andy Warhol attended the September 1967 premiere and gave Jackie a quote for the publicity. For the first time, I wasn't bored. Jackie was only 20 years old, just barely out of high school, and still living with his grandmother above her bar slugger The play got a rave review from the New York Times and later in the year was credited as a highlight of the theater season. It ran again the following year and later had a revival in 1974. This period wasn't just one of stunning success, though. Following a performance of the show, Jackie and co-star Estelle were decided to walk home in their makeup and costumes from the show, carrying all the donations collected during the performance with them. On their way home, they were harassed by three youth, one of whom held a switchblade against Jackie's neck. The switchblade ended up nicking her, making a very small cut. Jackie ignored it at first because it seemed to heal normally, but then when she started peeing blood, she was rushed to the hospital. The cut had caused an internal infection, and she ended up having to have emergency surgery to remove one of her kidneys. Just a few months later, in early 1968, Jackie would pen the book for a musical called Lucky Wonderful to mixed reviews before the second staging of Glamour, Glory, and Gold, which would feature Robert De Niro's first appearance on stage. The following month, Valerie Solanas of Scum Manifesto Infamy burst into Andy Warhol's factory and shot him, briefly killing the artist and also shooting art critic Mario Amaya. Solanas is an interesting and complicated figure. A radical lesbian feminist playwright, Solanus had apparently given Warhol a copy of her play Up Your Ass and asked him to produce it. When he failed to do so, she began accusing him of losing it and or stealing her ideas. She had for some time been self-publishing her scum manifesto as a pamphlet and was approached by Maurice Gerodius of Olympia Press, who wanted to publish her work. Solanus became convinced that this would mean Gerodius would own her work, and in a fit of paranoia about both Gerodius and Warhol, bought a gun. After shooting Warhol and Amaya, she turned herself into police and was later diagnosed as a paranoid schizophrenic. After she got out of jail in the early 1970s, she began stalking Warhol and other factory scene people, which landed her in jail again. By the late 70s, she was living on the street under the assumed name Ons Lowe. She would die in 1988 at the age of 52 in the Bristol Hotel in San Francisco, Andy never stopped living in fear of Solanus, and his death years later has often been attributed to the damage the shooting caused on his body. Lou Reed and John Cale would release a song about Solanus titled, I Believe, on their tribute album to Warhol, Songs for Drella. Here's an excerpt.
1: Valerie Solanas took the elevator, got off at the fourth floor. So long as the elevator got over the fourth floor, she pointed the gun at Andy, saying, You cannot control me anymore. I believe there's got to be some retribution. I believe an eye for an eye is elemental. I believe there's something wrong if she's alive right now.
0: Getting back to Jackie Curtis. The summer following the attack, Warhol had been planning to make a film called Flesh. Still recuperating in the hospital, Paul Morrissey took over the production for Andy, with Warhol never getting a chance to even step on set. The film was made for a grand total of $1,500 and featured the film debuts of Jackie Curtis and Candy Darling. Flesh cemented the fame of Jackie and Candy in the downtown scene, enabling them to live almost entirely off of mooching. They along with Hollywoodlawn, would couch surf, spend all day putting on makeup and clothing, and then at night go from party to party, eating and drinking whatever was at hand. In this way, they rarely had to pay for much of anything beyond the large volume of speed and other drugs that began to take hold of their lives. That December, Jackie would profess her full devotion to Andy Warhol by getting his name tattooed on her shoulder. When summer 1969 rolled around, Jackie planned to marry Eric Emerson on the roof of an apartment building at 211 East 11th Street. There were photographers and reporters there for this underground starlet's wedding along with Andy and a veritable who's who of in people at the time. Unfortunately, Emerson didn't show up. Still, the show must go on. So a porn producer performed the ceremony with a stand-in for a groom. It's unclear how much The wedding had been intended as a theatrical stunt or a serious endeavor, though I suppose the same could be said for almost anything Jackie did. She was crushed by Emerson standing her up at the altar, but remained undeterred from this course of action, later staging several other public weddings with various men in the 70s and 80s. Jackie joined John Vaccaro's Playhouse of the Ridiculous, an experimental theater troupe based in a former funeral home on 43rd Street, for a production called The Life of Lady Godiva, leading her to writing her next play, Heaven Grand in Amber Orbit. Lady Godiva co-star Ruby Lynn Rayner told Craig Heiberger how it came about. Notre Dame, a Catholic university in Indiana, invited us to perform the show for a big conference called Pornography and Censorship. And the entire cast went there on the train. We were so excited. Jackie and I were like Rita Hayworth in 1940s dresses, sitting on our luggage in Grand Central Station with our legs crossed, waiting to be photographed. It was on that train trip that Jackie began writing Heaven Grand in Amber Orbit. He found a racing form on his seat in the dining car, and he came up with most of the characters' names from it, like Classy Gravesend and Rouge Frolic. Those were the names of racehorses. Ironically, when they arrived at Notre Dame for the Pornography and Censorship Conference, Lady Godiva was deemed too scandalous, and the university censored the performance, forcing them to remove the nudity and only simulate the sex acts such as two nuns fucking each other, which had earned the show its reputation in the first place. John Vaccaro would end up firing Jackie from her own play, Heaven, Grand and Amber Orbit, during rehearsals, initially recasting Hollywood lawn in the main role, as I discussed in last week's episode, and then moving her back to the chorus and taking the lead himself. Still, The show, composed almost entirely of non-sequiturs and lines from classic Hollywood films, would be a hit and by February 1970 would move to La Mama. That March, Paul Morrissey began shooting the film that would become Women in Revolt, which If You Ask Me, is the best of the Warhol-Morrissey films by far. It's a satire of the women's liberation movement, starring Candy Darling as a sort of Patty Hearst type bourgeois actress character converted into a militant women's liber, with Jackie Curtis and Holly Woodlawn turning in some of their funniest performances. I'll dish deeper on this in the next installment of our three-part series on Warhol's Trans Muses, but suffice it to say, the film is a must-see. By May, Jackie had another play on at La Mama. She'd carved out quite a niche for herself as a theater artist at only 24 years old. But this fame and notoriety was not translating directly into having cash on hand. Ruby Lynn Rainer, who starred in several of Jackie's productions, says, Jackie and I lived together in an apartment for a few months. We had no money, so we stopped paying the rent and utilities. We went to Max's Kansas City every afternoon for happy hour because they served free hors d'oeuvres, and we would go and make a meal of chicken wings or whatever they put out. I remember we woke up one afternoon and they had turned our electricity off. Jackie only had an electric shaver, so he couldn't shave, and we had to get over to the theater. And he just put his makeup on over this heavy stubble and went and did the show like that. Scrounging and mooching were the day-to-day activities of Jackie, Candy, and Holly. According to Hollywood Lawn, it was during the filming of Women in Revolt that they began to stretch the limits of Andy's patience and pocketbook. Jackie and Holly would go to Max's Kansas City and order lobster and everything expensive on the menu, then sign Andy's name to the check. They got away with this for a month before Andy caught Wise and cut them off of his running tab at Max's. The next couple of years were intensely creative for Jackie, including the premiere of her plays Femme Fatale, starring Penny Arcade and Patti Smith, and Vain Victory, with Candy, Holly, and Augusto Macado. an appearance in an X-rated Yugoslavian film called W.R., Mysteries of the Organism, three more staged marriages the release of Women in Revolt and capped off by the release of Lou Reed's classic song Walk on the Wild Side which immortalized Jackie, Candy, and Holly along with fellow Warholians Joe D'Alessandro and Joe Campbell aka Sugar Plum Fairy
1: Jackie is just speeding away She was Jim Dean for a day. Then I guess she had to crash. Valium would have helped that fashion. Said, hey, babe, take a walk on the wild side. I said, hey, honey, take a walk on the wild side. And the colored girls say, by 1974,
0: Tired of being constantly extorted for money by Jackie, Holly, and Candy, Warhol shut them out of the scene. That year, Candy would die of lymphoma, and though distraught over the loss of their friend, Jackie and Holly would open their cabaret act, Cabaret in the Sky, an evening with Holly Woodlawn and Jackie Curtis at the New York Cultural Center. The show was a huge hit. Here's a clip from cabaret in the sky apologies for the sound quality it's from the 70s honey just deal with it
1: i'm a girl I'm a girl, and by me that's only great. <laughs> I am proud that my fellow is curvy. But i walk with a girlish game. With my hips kind of swivelly and swervy. I adore being dressed in something frilly. When my date comes to get me at my place, out I go with my George on a billy. Like a billy who is ready for the race. <laughs>
0: The following spring in 1975, Jackie would say that she'd graduated from Hunter College. This, however, has not been backed up. No diploma has been found, but the detail did make its way into Jackie's later obituary. So, who can say? Jackie went to Hollywood, leaving drag behind to audition for a role as James Dean in a TV biopic Making good on Lou's lyric that she, quote, thought she was James Dean for a day. She wouldn't get the part, though, and returned to both drag and New York within a couple of months. Clearly, Jackie was struggling with being pigeonholed as a drag artist. I would also speculate that Candy's death and Andy's seeming rejection catalyzed Jackie's want to start over somehow. He tells an interviewer in July 1975, I want to be a boy now. Maybe I'll marry Sandy Dennis. Sandy has 28 cats. She has a dog. She could add me. This frustration would only grow, leading Jackie to move in with his father in Tennessee in 1977, then to Los Angeles to audition for parts unsuccessfully, and finally back home to Slugger Ann's in 1978. Later that year, his mother died of cervical cancer. Jackie returns to drag again, this time hosting shows at Slugger Ann's, while wearing Slugger Ann's very own wedding dress. Unfortunately, by the next year, Slugger Ann would die too, taking even more of the wind out of Jackie's sails. Jackie's drinking and drug use escalate into the early 1980s, Desperate to save Jackie from herself, Penny Arcade helps Jackie quit drinking by spending every night with her for several months over the winter of 1983. Jackie films a pilot for a gay soap opera she wrote called Moral Heights, but fails to get it aired anywhere. And by the way, If the tape still exists anywhere of moral heights, I would personally love to see it. Somebody needs to upload that shit to YouTube or something. On May 26, 1984, Jackie stages yet another wedding, this time to Gary Meijerzak at number one Fifth Avenue. In attendance are Andy Warhol, Jean-Michel Basquiat, Larry Rivers, and Melba LaRose Jr. Warhol's art dealer, Leo Castelli, gives Jackie away. Jackie explains to everyone, with the help of an astrology chart, that her staged weddings have finally come full circle and that this will be her last. Shortly after the wedding, Jackie starts using heroin. She overdoses but is revived by her friend Margot Howard Howard. Unfortunately, her injection site becomes infected and she ends up being hospitalized for a few weeks at St. Vincent's Hospital in the West Village. Undeterred, Jackie manages to begin rehearsals for her final play that fall at La Mama. Titled Champagne, the play opens on January 3, 1985 to mixed reviews. Realizing her drug habit could cost her her life, Jackie tried to kick heroin in March 1985. She changed her name to Shannon Montgomery and began taking acting classes and auditioning for male roles on TV and in theater. Kicking drugs doesn't take, and by May 15, 1985, Jackie Curtis dies of an accidental heroin overdose. She was only 38 years old. Neither Paul Morrissey, nor Andy Warhol attend, though they send flowers. Jackie is buried in male drag under both her birth name and her drag name. Jackie would live on in Lou Reed's perennial hit, as well as in the collective memory of North American drag culture and queer experimental theater. A true icon and iconoclast, Jackie's torn up purposely clockable drag look would go on to inspire thousands of queens and genderqueers for decades to come. That's Taking a
1: puff, it's a figure of speech They said he took a powder Straight up the cup, He was hard
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. I am again particularly indebted to Craig B. Heiberger's book and film Superstar in a House Dress and Gary Comanis' excellent and thorough warholstars.org website. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com OFTV. You can also tweet at me at Morgan Paige, on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night. I'm not so bad Alone, alone In
1: And my fingers pose And I'm having a half-smoked cigarette Get it out of the way, girl It does you no good The past is the past You're knocking on wood of times (laughs) it was the world